2: touch with technology
0: with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks and I love all things tech. And today we're going to do a listener request. Listener Marcus wrote in and asked that I do an episode about Nokia. I thought it was high time. I tackled the subject and here we go because it's pretty cool. And by the way, uh, there are a lot of different ways of pronouncing this company. I've definitely heard Nokia a lot more frequently than Nokia, and I've heard Nokia. I've heard lots of different variations. It seems that no matter which one I pick, I'm wrong. I'm just accepting that. So I'm going to go with Nokia knowing that I'm wrong. So I've saved you the trouble of writing in. You're welcome. Now, before I jump into the story of Nokia, I want to give you guys a little bit of an anecdote. My memory is not the best. Anyone who knows me knows that's an understatement. But as best I can tell, my first cell phone was a Nokia 2100. That model came out in 2003. Now, it's possible that I had a Nokia 8210, That one came out in 1999. That was the really colorful one. You could actually pop the covers off and replace it with other covers. They had, I think, six different colors when it first came out. And then there were a bunch of third-party ones that had other ones with crazy designs. But I honestly cannot remember. So it's possible that I just saw the Nokia 8210s everywhere, but I didn't actually own one. Cell phones had been around in the general consumer population for a few years before I ever got a hold of one. I remember there were classmates of mine in college who had cell phones, and I kept on thinking, why the heck would I want people to be able to reach me whenever and wherever I was? And uh, it took me a few years to break down and get one. And of course now I have separation anxiety if I am not constantly in close proximity to my cell phone. But I never once thought to look into the company that made my first cell phone. I just assumed it was a Japanese company out of sheer ignorance. I thought, oh, it's Nokia. That sounds like it could be a company from Japan, I suppose. And I never really thought anything more of it, which was ridiculous, of course. And again, it was due to my own ignorance. So I did find out eventually that it was a company in Finland many years later, Uh, In fact, it might have been after I had started working here at How Stuff Works, which was back in 2008. So quite late in the game, as it were. I just wasn't really paying attention to mobile handset news. And until I did the research for the show, I had just assumed that Nokia was a relatively young company, perhaps with a background that stretched back maybe to the late 80s, maybe mid 80s and started in electronics, then worked their way to cellular phones. But I was so incredibly wrong. And this, my friends, is the biggest reason that I love my job. I get to learn stuff and push back my own ignorance, which is exciting to me to actually learn new things and then to share what I've learned, though I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar with elements of this story that I'm going to tell today. But maybe some of it will come as a surprise to you as well, and I I hope you also take delight in that. So our story begins in 1838. Finland with an engineer named Newt Fredrik Idman, later known as Fredrik Idistam. And I know also I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of these Finnish names, and I apologize profusely for that. Uh, Idistam actually took his the last name of his uncle, who adopted him. Now, I'm not about to tell you that a Finnish inventor created the cell phone in the mid-19th century in Finland. That would be ridiculous. Because who would he call? But Idistem would become the founder of the company that evolved into Nokia. Idistem followed in the footsteps of his father, who was a mining engineer. And he earned a master's degree in engineering and had planned on applying for employment with the Board of Mines of the Grand Duchy of Finland as a civil servant, Quick history lesson. At this time, Finland was technically part of the Russian Empire, but it was semi-autonomous and got to operate as what was called the Grand Duchy of Finland. Before that, it had been part of Sweden. So the geography and political nature will play into this story quite a bit as well. So it's, it's good to have that, that basic understanding. While Frederick was pursuing more education in the field of metallurgy in Germany, while attending the School of Mines in Freiburg, Saxony, he went on a little field trip, and he visited what was called a groundwood mill, which took wood and turned it into the raw materials for paper. So first of all, cool, and second of all, yay, I get to talk about paper mills. Now that might sound weird that I'm actually excited to talk about paper mills, but here's the thing. I grew up around paper mills when I was a little kid and the smell is memorable because paper mills these days typically use a chemical treatment on the wood pulp to turn it into paper. Uh, I should also mention that I grew up also around poultry farms and the mixture of smells when the wind blew just right of poultry farms and paper mills meant that I had a a, a a tough childhood, guys, at least as far as the olfactory system is concerned. Anyway, the paper mill Idistam visited was built to take advantage of the work of two innovators, Friedrich Gottlob Keller and Heinrich Filter. Keller had received a patent in 1846 for his method of making paper from wood fiber mash, and Filter... Uh, developed this approach to make mass production of paper a possibility. Until then, paper had been made from rags pretty much by hand. And this type of paper, sometimes called cotton paper, has some nice features to it that makes it superior in many ways to wood pulp paper. For example, it takes ink really well, and it's far more durable than wood pulp-based paper. But it was a laborious process, and it was hard to make a lot of it in a short amount of time. So here's how the old-style paper was made, because I think this is fascinating. And to be fair, there's still paper that's made this way. First, you would take some rags, perhaps from clothing that had been worn out during its usefulness, uh, usually made from something like linen. Later on, cotton became popular, but before the the shipments came back from the New World with cotton, linen was the primary type of textile material. During medieval times, you would actually have a guy who would go around essentially door-to-door collecting old linen clothing from people after the clothing had been worn out. He was also typically the same guy who would collect bones, usually animal bones, to be ground down for fertilizer. And that local dude became known as the rag-and-bone man. So if you've heard the phrase rag-and-bone man, that's where it comes from. You're only human, after all. Don't put the blame on me. The linen was prime material for paper pulp. You just had to prepare it first. So workers at the paper mill would use a knife to tear the linen clothing into smaller strips. They would dunk those strips into a vat filled with water and let it soak for a couple of days. And after that, they would take the soggy mess and lay it in a trough. Now, in Germany, it became common practice to use huge, heavy wooden hammers that were driven by a water wheel device to just lift up and smash down over and over again, smashing this soggy mess until it becomes pulp. At that point, you would transfer the pulp into a vat, and workers would dip a frame with parallel wires, kind of a sieve strung across this uh, this frame, and they would gather up pulp, and they would pour out any excess pulp, and they would make sure they had a nice, relatively flat... Uh, layer of pulp, they'd swish the frames around a bit, and they would gently lay out a sheet of soggy, wet paper against a layer of cloth, and then they would cover it up with another layer of cloth. They would repeat the process, having kind of a sandwich of cloth and paper this way. I watched a video of a man in India who uses this old method all by hand, swishing the pulp in the frame, almost like he was panning for gold. It's what it reminded me of. So what's happening on a microscopic basis? Well, imagine pulp as a huge mass of tiny strings. And this is true for pulp from rags or from wood. Processing pulp makes the strings hairy, meaning it abrades the edges. It It makes them uneven. That encourages the various fibers to bind together. And it's that binding process that creates sheets of paper. Now let's go back to the medieval paper mill. Now eventually they would move a pile of these soggy sheets that were pressed between layers of cloth over to a press machine. So you've got a a flat press and a screw top, and by turning the screw top, it brings the press down and squeezes everything underneath it, right? Right. Well, in this case, they would use it to squeeze most of the water out of the sheets of paper, and then they would hang up the sheets of paper to dry out the rest of the way. The parallel wires of the frames would create a ribbed pattern on the paper, and that type of paper became known as laid paper. By the time Frederick Idistam was... Visiting a paper mill, a new type of paper was beginning to emerge. The papermakers started using what they called a wove mold, meaning the frames they were using actually had a tightly woven sieve of wires that crisscrossed each other in a grid rather than just parallel. That created a paper that was easier to write on. It made it more legible. It was considered superior to the laid paper approach. In the 17th century in Holland, engineers created a device casually called a Hollander, That made this process a little easier. It had a tub that you would fill with rags and water, and you would use a set of rotating blades connected to some form of gear work that would harness a natural source of power. So you might have a windmill, and you're harnessing wind power, or you might have a water wheel, and you're harnessing water power. This sped things up a bit, but everyone was still using rags to create paper at that time. The wood pulp advancements that Keller and Felter created changed things significantly. And in a moment, we'll explore how a wood pulp paper mill worked back in the 19th century. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. All right, so how does a wood pulp paper mill work? The earliest wood pulp mills used mechanical force to turn wood into pulp. So you would chop down trees, then you would cut the trees up into small logs called bolts. The bolts would go through grinders made out of stone, typically sta- sandstone, and you would use some form of of uh, power to turn these grinders. You would typically have a water wheel, or maybe you would use human or animal power, but more frequently than not, you would use uh, water wheels just because you needed that, that hydropower to really turn these massive stones, and the grinders would crush the bolts into pulp, which would be soaked and then poured into the paper molds to form sheets of paper. Wood pulp paper was less durable than rag paper, and it didn't take ink quite as well, so before paper makers learned how to treat the wood with various chemicals to improve the quality of paper, it was pretty brittle, and had a tendency to turn yellow after just a couple of days, but it did lend itself to mass manufacture in a way that rag paper didn't, and it was relatively cheap to produce. So while it was arguably an inferior paper, it was easier to produce in the quantities that were in demand. This was also a time in history when literacy was on the rise. The Industrial Revolution was giving people an opportunity to have more time to themselves, which they filled with various activities such as reading. Now, Frederick took this newfound knowledge of paper mills back to his homeland of Finland. Finland seemed like the perfect place to establish a wood pulp paper mill. The country had enormous forests and no shortage of fast-flowing rivers, so locating a mill along a river to use the water as a power source and harvesting the lumber from the vast forests seemed like a perfect opportunity. Frederick ordered machines from Germany designed by Felter himself to install such a paper mill in his home country— he applied for a permit to operate such a business, and the Finnish Senate approved the permit on May 12, 1865, and Nokia traces back their history to that very day. The mill took time to build and bring up to operational status, but it began producing paper commercially in 1866. Frederick located his first mill in Tampere near the Tammerkoski Rapids. And his venture succeeded where other entrepreneurs in Finland had failed. Felter's technology was proven to be effective. Now, Frederick had to devote as much energy to promoting paper as he did in bringing the technology to Finland. The general consensus was that wood pulp paper just wasn't very good. But Frederick kept at it and experimented with papers made from a collection of rag and wood pulp fibers. So he started combining the two. In 1867, at the Paris Exhibition, he brought home the bronze medal after demonstrating his groundwood pulp. Felter's Mill received a gold medal, so this was seen as an endorsement that helped propel wood pulp paper into common use. In 1868, Frederick built a second paper mill. This time, he chose a location called Nokia, which was built along a river called Nokia. And that river provided a much better source of hydropower. It was just a a stronger flowing river. So he formed a partnership with his friend Leo Michelin, or sometimes Leo Michelin, to create a shared company. And they called it Nokia AB, or AB, AB is what that stands for. Anyway, this was the birth of the Nokia name. Leo Michelin, by the way, was a remarkable man in his own right. He earned degrees in literature, aesthetics, and jurisprudence, so he had the opportunity to become a lawyer but instead became a professor and he continued studies in economics at the same time. He also later became a member of parliament for the Swedish People's Party and was known as a liberal reformer who worked hard to create a strong Finnish economy. When Russia began to put the screws to the Grand Duchy of Finland, which, again, was technically part of the Russian Empire at that time, Michelin advocated passive resistance as a means to protest Russia's policies. Quick historic note here, Finland, again, was originally part of Sweden. In the early 1800s, during the Finnish War, Russian uh, Russian forces wrested Finland away from Sweden, incorporated it into the Russian Empire. Finland was able to maintain a good, a, good deal of autonomy, unlike a lot of Russian uh, territories, And now back to Michelin. He was exiled for his actions for for recommending this passive resistance. And he was later allowed back in because he was actually voted into parliament. So once he was voted in as a member of parliament, the country said, well, I guess we can't really keep you banished. You represent the people. So come on back. In 1871, Frederick and Michelin transformed Nokia AB into Nokia Limited, creating a share company. And as the name implies, this is a company in which investors purchase shares or a percentage of the ownership of the company. Essentially, Nokia was becoming a publicly traded company, though in those early days it wasn't on a public stock exchange. Michelin purchased an estate called Nokia Manor, which included property along the Nokia Rapids, And all of those assets became part of Nokia Limited. So while Michelin made the purchases, he ended up incorporating that as part of the company. And they started having their headquarters in this manor house. And the waterfalls that were uh, adjacent to the manor house were considered part of their property. They actually owned the waterfall. In 1885, the company built the first sulfite pulp mill in Finland. This took a different approach than the mechanical mills that had used physical force to break down the wood into pulp. Now, there was a chemical process in the mix. So let me explain that. First, you need sulfurous acid. Not sulfuric, but sulfurous. The mill could produce this by taking sulfur and burning it with just the right amount of oxygen, which would create sulfur dioxide. They would then use water to absorb the sulfur dioxide, which creates sulfurous acid. Then you add in some carbonates or hydroxides as counter ions, and you pour this pulping liquid into a double boiler. Now, a double boiler is a device in which you have one container located inside a second container, and around that that first container, the inner one, you have water. So you've got second container, you've got water, then you have uh, the first container inside all of that. And you heat up the second container so that it boils the water, and that in turn heats up the first container. And uh, double boilers are common for lots of different things, including cooking. You may have created a double boiler, especially if you were working with something like trying to melt chocolate. Well, you would mix in wood pulp and allow the wood pulp and this mixture, the sulfurous acid mixture, to mush together. Uh, the, the actual device that this stuff was in were called digesters. So you could think of it as digesting this wood pulp for several hours at high temperatures, typically somewhere between 130 and 160 degrees Celsius, or between 266 to 320 degrees Fahrenheit. The pulping liquid extracts a material called lignin from the wood. Uh, This is something that provides structural support in the cells inside wood pulp. After its time in the digesters, the treated pulp would be washed to remove the chemicals and the degraded lignin that was leached from this stuff, and the pulp could then be used to create paper or combined with other pulps and then used to create paper. The paper business was progressing well, and Michelin began to urge the, uh, Frederick that the company should diversify and get into other businesses. He was specifically thinking about creating an electricity power plant because they were right next to this river. They said he said, "This is perfect. We can use the river to help turn a generator and generate electricity." But Frederick was not on the same page. That's a paper pun, and he refused. So he said, not as long as I'm alive. Now, he ended up retiring in 1896, and Michelin would assume the role of Nokia Ab's chairman, and he began laying the groundwork for building out an electricity plant, which was ready to go in 1902. All right, so we're in the home stretch for the origin of Nokia to talk a little bit more about what happened in those early days. But before I jump into this last segment, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Now we need to switch gears a bit and talk about another Finnish entrepreneur and the business he founded. The businessman's name was Edward Polon. He was the son of a police chief. He had earned himself a law degree and he worked as a lawyer and a civil servant in Finland's prison administration. That's fun. Edward joined several other business owners to create a new company that was called the Finnish Rubber Works Limited. Uh, It actually has a much longer name in Finnish that I cannot possibly pronounce, so I'm not even gonna try it. But in English, Finnish Rubber Works Limited. And someday I'll have to do a full episode about the role that rubber played in industrialization and how its discovery led to massive trauma in the Amazon, both for indigenous peoples, in fact, mainly for them, who called the area their home, and to the Europeans who were seeking out a way to make a fortune, thousands of whom died in the process. But we'll sum it up here to say that in the late 19th century, rubber was in demand, and it was being used for many different things, including waterproof boots. Galoshes became the Finnish rubber company's chief product, something that Nokia still makes to this day. In 1904, the company relocated its headquarters from Helsinki to the town of Nokia. The move was necessary in order to grow as a company. There just wasn't much room in Helsinki for the expansion. And Nokia had a ready workforce, and the river was a steady source of hydropower. Also, the electricity generator from Nokia Ab was a great resource. So why do I bring that up? because in 1918, this rubber company acquired Nokia Limited, largely in order to get access to that hydropower that Nokia had at its disposal, though these two companies would operate independently because at the time, it was actually against the law for companies in different industries to merge together in Finland, so they could not operate as a single entity because it was illegal to do so. While the rubber company was growing and the Nokia paper and electricity businesses were doing well, another company was establishing itself in Finland, and that was a venture that was called the Finnish Cable Company. Again, the actual Finnish names are really long, and I would just butcher them if I attempted them, but it's the Finnish Cable Company, and it was founded by Ovid Wikström. His company produced telephone, telegraph, and electrical cables. Polone would lead an acquisition of that company in 1922, bringing it under this conglomerate. So now you had three companies. You had the rubber company, you had the Finnish Cable Company, and you had Nokia AB. And he still had to run all three businesses independently of one another, though they were in this kind of conglomerate. Edward was the majority shareholder. The main businesses now were electricity generation, cable production, rubber manufacturing, and paper-slash-forestry goods. Palom became the head of this new conglomerate, and he led the way. 1922 would end up being a big year for lots of reasons, not just because this conglomerate formed. That was also the year that Joseph Stalin established the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic— also known as the Soviet Union or USSR. Finland had previously declared its independence from the Russian Empire back in 1917 after the Grand Duke Nicholas II abdicated his authority as emperor, ending the empirical rule of Russia. So you had the emperor say, all right, I'm out. You had Finland say, all right, then that means we're independent now. You can't do anything about it. And Russia or... Imperial Russia at that point that's crumbling around it said, you know, we've got bigger problems to worry about than Finland. Now, I mentioned this because the Soviet Union would become one of Nokia's big customers after what could generously be described as an adversarial relationship with Finland. And now we have to jump into some World War II history to really understand how complicated this gets. On November 30th, 1939, the Soviet Union launched an attack on Finland with the intent to annex Finland back into the Soviet Union, thus negating Finland's Declaration of Independence in 1917. The Finnish people had, up to that point, been divided about the conflict in Europe. whether Some wanted to side with the Allies, some with the Axis powers... But this attack managed to unify the country against the USSR, which was part of the Allied forces. Now, they weren't against all the Allies at this point, just against the USSR, but Finnish resistance would end up being fierce. But the Soviets vastly outnumbered the Finns, and in 1940, the Finnish government had to sign a peace treaty that ended up ceding much of Finland to the Soviet Union. This was later called the Winter War. Finland would try to seek out help as the Soviets continued to place pressure on the country. And they asked the Allies, they said, could you guys help? Sweden and uh, Britain both said, hey, we really feel for you, but we've got our own stuff going on. And eventually, they turned to Germany instead. Germany was, of course, eager to have a foothold from which it could launch an invasion into the Soviet Union. And so Finland would find itself allied with the Nazi Germany powers and Axis powers, and this began what was called the Continuation War in 1941. Finland was intent on retaking the lands it had lost at the end of the Winter War, and the conflict would stretch on until 1944. It went back and forth a few times, uh, and at that point, there was an uneasy peace, That was arrived at between the Soviet Union and Finland, and not much had changed, territorially speaking, from the end of the Winter War. Essentially, we were back to where things were at the beginning of the conflict. In the fall of 1944, Finland turned against Germany and began fighting in the Lapland War after the Soviet Union applied political and military pressure as codified in the Moscow Armistice. So, Finland was being told by the Soviet Union, you need to, uh, you need to put up resistance against Germany. You need to kick out German troops from your country. You need to actually go on the offensive. You need to declare war against Germany. Finland wasn't really keen on this. The leader of Finland at the time was sort of sympathetic to Germany. And there was a reluctance to engage in warfare against a country that had previously been its ally. At the same time, the Soviet Union was saying, if you want this peace to hold, you will do what we say, and we outnumber you, so maybe you should start acting on that. So Finland officially began attacking German forces on September 28, 1944. In the wake of the war, once World War II was over, Finland was forced to pay reparations to the Soviet Union. Essentially, the Allies said, your actions during the war put you more on the Axis side than the Allied side, and you owe the Soviet Union for all the different attacks you did, even though the Soviet Union technically attacked Finland first. Not all of Finland was suffering due to this relationship with the Soviet Union. For example, Nokia. Nokia's electricity-generating business ended up doing quite well. The Soviet Union became one of Nokia's biggest customers. In fact, their primary customer. The Soviet Union would purchase electrical equipment, cables, manufacturing machinery, and more from Nokia. As Nokia began to offer up more uh, products, the Soviet Union began to purchase them. That allowed Nokia to grow rapidly and expand. And that allowed them to pursue a new market, which was electronics, in 1963, Nokia starts making radio telephones, mostly for the Finnish military, some for the Soviet military, and for first responders. This would be the, uh, the, still the conglomerate, right? There's not a company yet. It's a conglomerate of companies to dip its toe, the first time that they would dip their toe in an industry that would later define the company. So in 1967, more than 100 years After Frederick established his first paper mill, the three companies within the Nokia conglomerate formally merged together to create the Nokia Corporation. The company's businesses included electronics, rubber, cable, and lumber. It was poised to pursue opportunities in several spaces, including consumer electronics. And yet there was still no hint that this company would become a major player in the futuristic technology of portable cellular phones. Now, in the next episode, we're going to pick up with the Nokia Corporation and talk about how it forged a pathway in electronics in general and cell phones in particular. We'll also look at how the company ultimately made the decision to divest itself of nearly all of its businesses, including ultimately its mobile device division, which one could argue was the division that gave the company its global reach in the 1990s. In the meantime, if you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a technology, a company, a personality in tech, maybe there's someone you would like to have on the show as a co-host or someone I should interview, please write me and let me know your thoughts. The address for this show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember to follow us on Instagram, and remember also that I broadcast this show live on Wednesdays and Fridays at twitch.tv slash techstuff. You can just go over there, watch me broadcast, and make mistakes all over the place, and slowly drive my producer, Tari, insane. It's a good old time. You can jump into the chat room, and you can admonish me for making my producer insane. I go through a lot of producers. Tari's like the fifth one. I'll see how long she lasts. And I'll talk to you again really soon.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot
3: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.